So if you've been with us uh, for a while now, you know we've been going through the Gospel of John. We're going to take a, take a week break from John. I'm going to have you, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of 1 Peter. Towards the end of the, of the whole book, the end of the Bible, 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, if you're on a device, you can go to the ESV version and that'll keep you tracking with us. 1 Peter chapter 1. So the book of 1 Peter, just to give us a little bit of, of some background here, it was written by the Apostle Peter, hence 1 Peter. Uh, he was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. And if you read the stories about Peter as we go through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then even, even elsewhere, you, you read that this is a, a dude who did some funny, sad, and crazy things. Um, at one point, Peter rebuked Jesus and then promptly was rebuked by Jesus. Uh, at one point, he walked on water to Jesus, had this supernatural encounter with Jesus, and then sunk in the water right next to Jesus. Um, he said he would die for Jesus right before denying Jesus three times. Here's one. He cut off a man's ear to protect Jesus before running away and abandoning Jesus. Um, Peter's done some interesting things. Nobody's going to download Peter's resume from jobs.com, right? That's not, how, that's not who he is. And yet we don't really have to because we are Peter. Peter is our resume in, in a lot of ways. And yet what we see um, all through scripture, through the New Testament, is that Jesus loved Peter. Jesus forgave Peter. Uh, he used Peter to build the early church and what we're going to read now is part of a letter that Peter wrote to a group of those early churches who were experiencing some significant amounts of suffering. And they needed to be assured that they were still being held secure by Jesus Christ. Actually, it's the same assurance that we need this morning to, to be encouraged in order to build one another up. And by the way, this is the assurance that only Easter can provide. So what Easter symbolizes for us, the events, the true event of Jesus being resurrected from the dead, this is the reason why we have and can have assurance this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, uh, Scott already read some of it to us, but I'm just going to take us through verse 9, beginning with 3, it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul. That's the word of the Lord. That's going to be our passages for this morning. 
We're going to look at the salvation of our souls. We're going to see that it is given to us by God through Jesus Christ. And that it results in a hope that remains secure even as our faith is being tested and refined. And so what I want to look at this morning is, is how exactly do we describe that? How exactly do we describe the salvation of one's souls? Is salvation just, you know, quote unquote, getting saved? Is that all there is to it? In other words, what is life supposed to look like for a saved person? You know, how, how should a, a saved person understand suffering, which, which Peter talks a little bit about here? What does a saved person have even to look forward to? If salvation is just getting saved, like that moment when you just get saved, right? Then why does this life even matter? And what is Easter all about anyway, if that's true? So let me start at a baseline level so that we can even understand what we're talking about and not what we're talking about, but more specifically, what the Bible is talking about when it talks about salvation. Because when we think of a person who has been saved or rescued, what we typically think of them is that they, they had this moment where they narrowly escaped death by maybe some stroke of luck or for, from some good fortune or at the hand of somebody who was kind enough to reach in and save them from whatever was getting ready to take their life. But the salvation of a person's soul in the, the spiritual or the biblical sense is not someone who has escaped death as much as someone who's been resurrected from death. Here's an example. If you are drowning in the ocean and someone throws you a lifeline, you, you might be able to physically grab that lifeline and hold on until they pull you to safety, all right? And, and then you would have all these, these moments in your life where you could tell the story of how you were saved from drowning. But here's the issue. You weren't really saved from death, right? All that really happened was that you delayed death. Sorry, this is really dark for Easter, but like stay with me here, because it's gonna get better, it's gonna get happier. But listen to this, if you were someone who was already dead on the bottom of the ocean floor and someone dove down, pulled you back to shore and brought you back to life, what happened in that moment was that you defeated death. Jesus defeated death when he rose from the dead on the third day. This is what we're celebrating today on Easter, and it means that because Jesus defeated death, we can have a secure salvation if we believe this good news, which is what's called the gospel, right? We can live with assurance that everything Jesus said was true because he was who he said he was, and by rising, raising, I don't know the right word there, by rising from the dead, he proved it. He proved that his words were true. Tim Keller, who is an author, pastor, former pastor of Redeemer Church in Manhattan. I love this quote. This is what he says. Listen to this. He said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, 
but whether or not he rose from the dead. And so that's what we want to unpack here for a a few minutes, which is what happens to those who accept that Jesus rose from the dead. What, What has happened to a person who has had their guilt removed, their sins forgiven, and found peace with God. Well, it means that their soul has been rescued from death. So what does Peter tell us to expect then if we're people whose souls have been saved and rescued? So what we're going to do is we're going to take these passages and we're going to kind of, kind of start at the end and move back because the first thing that Peter tells us here is that for a person whose soul has been saved, they are given to inexpressible rejoicing here in verses 8 and 9. Remember the, the story of, of Thomas, uh, one of Jesus' disciples. So there's this story of Thomas who, after Jesus rose from the dead, he said in, in the book of John, chapter 20, he said this, he said, look, unless I see in his hands the mark of his nails and place my finger into the, into the mark of his nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe, Thomas said. And then after Jesus appears to him and and, and proved that he was alive, Jesus says to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? And then he says this, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's everybody here. If you believe in Jesus, you have not seen, but you have believed. So faith, faith faith is this act of believing in what you can't see. It's hoping with a hope that has no chance of being disappointing. This is what Hebrews 11.1 tells us about faith and hope. It tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. So when we think about the Christian faith, we understand that from Scripture that it's a gift given to us. And it's a gift that also comes packaged according to Peter here, with a joy that is inexpressible and beyond our human capacity to even fully communicate and express because of how great the salvation is that was gifted to us. This is like this inexpressible joy that comes from a heart that's been transformed to actually hope in something that is not going to collapse, hope in something that is not going to disappoint, Hope in something that is not at one point just going to dissolve. Because if we hope in stuff like that, then what are we saying our hope really is intrinsic? What, what, is, what is it made up of intrinsically, right? You know, think about something in your life that has caused you just to like erupt in, in rejoicing. Maybe it was, well, maybe it was last week. Maybe it was the Ashland women's basketball team winning the national championship, right? Yeah. Um, only a few of you are really excited about that, apparently. Um, but there was so much joy. You know, there was so much joy when you talked to the people who were there, who were a part of it, when you talked to some of the team members, right? Maybe it will be the day when the Browns win the Super Bowl. Maybe that'll be the explosion of joy that you'll, that you'll experience. And yet, here's what's interesting about that, right? Nothing will ever match the moment and feeling of the day that they, they won, right? 
You will never be jumping up and down, screaming with joy in a packed arena or a stadium again, right? There's that one moment. Here's what's different. Peter describes the salvation of our souls as filled with inexpressible rejoicing, meaning that it's a type of supernatural joy that God will sustain through your life. Salvation is not just a memory that we look back on and say, it was great, but now it's time to get back to real life, everybody, right? It is your real life now. That is the salvation of your soul. It is now the shape of your life. It is meant to be the outcome of a life where you grow in your love for Jesus, your faith in Jesus, your joy for Jesus. Dude, you do not have to hesitate. You don't have to be cautious. You don't have to hold back. You don't have to be careful in your expression for Jesus because unlike the Browns, it is impossible for this kind of hope to disappoint. Why? Because his promise has actually come true. Peter's telling us that inexpressible joy is what comes included in the package of the salvation of one's soul. What a thing. And what else are we able to even say that about? Well, nothing, right? Because nothing has an unending, hope-filled, glory-attained future that the salvation of our souls has because it was given to us as a gift. It was accomplished for us by nobody other than Jesus Christ. It's why we were just able to experience this baptism that gives evidence that there is now inexpressible joy in the hearts of someone, this woman, Laura Strait, who now can praise God with a hope that is not going to disappoint, not going to come to an end, not going to turn on her, not going to be a counterfeit, right? The next thing we can expect if our soul is saved is that we will be grieved by trials. What? Right? When you look in verses 6 through 7, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation or the revealing of Jesus Christ. So listen to this. Such is the, the power and the beauty and the glory of our salvation that it even extends it, it, like, it like runs like a river through the trials in our lives that cause incredible amounts of grief. It's in these times and seasons that Peter reminds us that our faith is so precious to God that he tests and refines it so that our hearts actually remain in a place that they're able to increasingly rejoice. And by the way, testing is, is not weird. Testing is not unusual when we look at the history of faith through Scripture. And not even just through Scripture. But if we just go back and we talk to people that have, that have lived some years in the faith, they're going to tell you about the trials they've experienced. They're going to tell you about the grief that they've experienced. But when we go to Scripture, we see people like Abraham. Remember when Abraham was being tested, he was commanded by God to take his son Isaac's life. Of course, he didn't end up doing that. The Lord prevented him, but the Lord was testing him. The Lord wanted to see, hey, Abraham, are you really following me? 
How authentic is your faith? In other words, do you trust me for everything or are you just trying to figure this stuff out? Am I just a guy that you tap when you need something? Do you just have me on the shelf like a book that looks nice and occasionally you grab it and you open it? But in the, in the real day-to-day life, it doesn't really have any place, doesn't really have any meaning. God was testing Abraham. Remember Job? The story of Job. Job was being tested. This brother's entire world was brought to ruin in a day after his children and his fortune were just literally taken from him. Why do saved people like Abraham and Job and you and I, why do we experience trials. Peter tells us, he says, it is for our faith to be proven to be genuine so that our faith is tried, so that it grows, so that we can have some level of assurance that we are secure in the faithfulness of God through Christ, right? James, the the half-brother of Jesus, this is what he tells us uh, about this. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Okay, James, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And then he says this, let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's not gonna happen in our lifetime, but it is the place that we are getting to as God tests and refines our faith. So, so there is a joy that's contained when we learn to grow in perseverance through the testedness of our faith. There's a joy that becomes expressed as even we grieve in these trials because we see that God is at work and that he is doing something and that he's not flippant. He's not erratic about it, but he's intentional and he's loving. It's one of the interesting realities of the Christian faith is that God allows trials for the sake of you being able to give praise and honor and glory to Jesus for all he has done to save you from the sin and brokenness that is responsible for your trials to begin with. It's interesting how that works. And Easter reminds us of grief, right? We were celebrating our Good Friday service on Friday night, this moment of grief really even just unimaginable grief for Jesus Christ. Easter reminds us of the grief of the cross, of the trial that Christ endured, which is what had to happen to create any possibility that human beings could endure, listen to this, through suffering in a way that isn't meaningless. Without the cross, how do we understand suffering? Until Jesus comes and suffers in our place willingly for the sake of our salvation, how do we understand trials? How do we understand that it's not for nothing until we understand that our faith is being refined in those moments? The salvation of your soul through the death and resurrection of Jesus is what makes that possible. Thirdly, what else do we expect as people whose souls have been saved. And number three is, is that our faith is guarded by God's power. Look what it says in verse five. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So these trials that grieve you can sometimes bring you to a dark place. They can bring you to a place of despondency and disorientation, 
questioning. See that all through scripture. That's not weird. Trials can test your faith to its limits. You will ask questions like, is God even real? Or if he is real, why are these things happening to me? I thought becoming a Christian meant that God would lessen my painful struggles. But then you see that being a Christian is when these real battles, these real struggles begin to rage around you and the authenticity of your faith becomes refined, which creates moments where you get to come face to face with God, like David did in, in Psalm 61. Listen to what David says. He said, hear my cry, O God. He said, listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. You hear the pleading in David's voice. You can only wonder where his faith was at when he prayed this prayer in Psalm 61. And like David, we need our faith to be strengthened and fortified by something greater than the faith that comes from our faint hearts. Peter doesn't leave us discouraged here. He reminds us that our faith is being guarded by God's power. And what this means is that your faith is safe because God has secured it through Christ. Faith is a gift of God, scripture tells us. So it means that he will keep you faithful, not because you're so faithful, because you ain't. You ain't that faithful. But God will keep you faithful. He will keep you faithful, right? Because why? Because he is faithful. He gave it to you. He will guard it for you. So we have these moments where it looks and feels like our faith has burned to the ground. But then we remember that the Lord is the one carrying us through the fire we think has burned it down. That's what's really going on with our faith. That the Lord preserves it. He gives it to us as a gift. He preserves it when it's at its lowest place. That's why it's safe to trust God even when we don't know what the heck he's doing. Remember, your faith is more precious to him than it could possibly be to you. Your faith is forever guarded by the power of God or else, let's just do a little logic and reason here, all right? Or else, what, what good is it? What good is it otherwise? If your faith was of such little value to God, then why did he send Jesus to die? Why does God bother testing your faith if it's of so little value to him? Why does God even bother to strengthen and increase your faith? What would it say about God if your faith just up and vanished one day? Well, it would say that God was pretty neglectful, that he isn't really that powerful that your faith means very little to him. It would say that God is not concerned about your life like the loving father he is described as. Since people like Paul instructed Christians, even in, in verses like Ephesians 6.16, to, to take up the shield of faith 
with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. If faith was that meaningless, if it was so elusive, then why is God guarding it and telling us to use it as a shield? It's because our faith is more precious to him. Your faith is guarded by God's power because his salvation through Jesus made it possible for you and me to have a faith at all. If you have a salvation that can't be taken away, it means you can be assured that your faith will be tested to ensure that it's the genuine article. And someday, when Christ returns, your faith will come into full bloom. We wait for that day. Resurrection day, Easter day reminds us that that day is coming. That's the hope that we have. You know, my wife, Melissa, she gets so excited at this time of the year because all of her plants start to come through the soil. And she's like, it worked. I planted and here they are. They're coming, right? She's rewarded for her patience and waiting. Winter is over. Not always in Ohio. Don't ruin my illustration. <laughs> but winter is over. The bloom is coming. Here's our last point for those whose souls have been saved. Here's what Peter tells us is true about our lives, is that we are reborn to a hope-filled inheritance. We see that in verses 3 and 4. It's called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfaded, kept in heaven for you. This is an inheritance that can be hoped for because it's a hope based on the assurance of God's resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Without the resurrection, this rebirth Peter is referring to would just be a legend. And then hope would be just a fool's errand. It would, hope would be mythical in that sense, right? But because Jesus actually rose from the dead, hope becomes a living thing. It's not wishful thinking for something you want to come true, but has a slim chance of happening unless, you know, all the ducks are in order, right? Christian hope is a true, verifiable hope that does require trust, but can be assured of as true regardless of outside circumstances or influence that attempt to convince us otherwise, right? It's not a static hope. That's what Peter's trying to point out. It's living, it's moving, it's breathing inside of us. It's assuring us that the words of Jesus are true when we are at our lowest moment. When we don't see evidence that God's hand is working in our life, the words of God convince us of what his heart is for us and that we are in a season of waiting, but that we can wait in hope. Why? Because God has never lied about anything he's ever said. It's not a static hope to believe in the words of Jesus. It's a hope that's tied to something. Peter tells us to an inheritance that is imperishable. Can't go, it can't die. Un undefiled, it can't be spoiled. Unfading, it won't just dissolve when all the elements around it try to dissolve it. It's kept in heaven, it's in view. We can see that as something that's being guarded for us. We all love spring. We all love spring. I feel like we get about two hours of it in Ohio. Maybe that's why we love it so much. We all love spring because it means everything is coming back to life. 
It means things are growing again, right? But we wouldn't have the need for spring if fall and winter never happened, right? Fall and winter remind us that everything around us is perishable. It's defiled. It's fading. It's unkept, right? What the salvation of our souls tells us is that we needed the resurrection of Jesus Christ because our souls were trapped in perpetual fall and winter, again, which is what Ohio feels like half the year, right? But this is the message of Easter. This is the, the hope, the beauty, the glory, the encouragement of this Sunday morning. Death has not been delayed. It's been defeated. We are reborn with a living hope, an unfading inheritance and though we will still be grieved by trials, we can trust God to guard our faith while he tests and refines it so that we are filled with this inexpressible joy as we wait with patience to see the Savior of our souls face to face. Let me leave you with this. Because Christ has risen, he takes your faith seriously. So be encouraged if you're in a hard season where you feel like, I feel like I'm somebody who has a faith, but it's so low. It's been so diminished. It's buried so far beneath the hard, wintry, icy soil. Because Christ has risen and your life is in Christ, that bloom of your faith will push through the soil again. Be encouraged if you're in a hard season and you can't, see evidence of it. And in fact, remember that right now in your heart as I'm saying these words, and you're somebody who is desiring for your faith to grow and to increase, and it grieves you for the place that it's in, that is a work of the Spirit in your heart right now. Be encouraged by that. Secondly, because Christ has risen, he is, he is guarding your faith by his power. Pray today that God would Strengthen and increase your faith. That is the will of God, is that your faith would increase. So when you pray, God, increase my faith, he's going to increase your faith, right? Because it means that your desires in this moment are aligning with his desires, right? Pray that God would strengthen your faith. This sounds so simple. Some of you guys are going, why, why do we have him up there? Third, because Christ is risen you will persevere if your faith is genuine. Take some time to rejoice today that your salvation is secure. It's secure because of Christ. It's not secure because of you, right? It's not secure because of you, right? Nobody asks you to, to go to like Fort Knox with a slingshot and say, just hold it, hold it down. That would, be the, that would be the equivalent of you being responsible to keep your faith secure. It just doesn't happen. It can't happen. You don't have that kind of power, which is why Peter says it's guarded by God's power. You've never been more safe and secure if you have a faith and it's genuine because it's guarded by God's power. Rejoice in that. What does it mean to rejoice in that, Ronnie? You want me to stand up and flip out? Yeah. Or if you're just a little more subdued, you can say, Lord, thank you for guarding my, my weak faith. Thank you for guarding my faith. 
Thank you for your power in my life that is working to increase my faith and that even as I'm praying this to you right now, this is one of the ways that it's increasing as I'm acknowledging and rejoicing in how you have guarded it with your power. Finally, because Christ is risen, your soul can be saved. If you repent of your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and count you as righteous before him and bring you into the family of God where death will be defeated forever for you. Your life is gonna be hard and it is gonna be complicated and it is gonna be messy and you are gonna be grieved by various trials and all of that is so dark if it wasn't for what happened on Easter morning, which is that Christ rose to defeat the powers of darkness that have a hold over us until we receive the salvation that Jesus offers us. This can be yours. You can receive this. You can live this life, this messy life as somebody with hope as somebody who can lay down at night and go, it can all go to pot. But Jesus is securing me. I can have hope. I can have assurance. I can know where all of this is heading, regardless of what happens in my life. All the tragedy that may strike, all of the grief that I will experience. Imagine somebody who went to these lengths to draw you in to himself so that you might have peace with God. That is the salvation of our souls. And when we celebrate communion now in a minute, that's what we're celebrating. That's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating that death has been defeated. On the night before his death, Jesus celebrated communion, the Lord's Supper with his disciples. He said, he said eat this bread symbolically. It represents my broken body that I'm a, that's about to be broken. He said, drink this cup. Enjoy this. Celebrate this symbolically. The blood that, that's about to be shed on the cross so that death can be defeated. So that the salvation of your souls can happen. And so that's what we're going to celebrate now. I'm going to pray and I'm going to give us some, just, a, just a little bit of time in our prayer to be reflective this morning, to, to uh, meditate on, on the resurrection of Jesus, to pray that he would fill us with joy as we come and we take of the bread and the cup. There's three stations, two up here, uh, one in the back. You'll have to stand in line and then find a couple people that you can just pray with and, and take the elements with. That's what we want to do as we, we finish up our service. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that death has been defeated by Christ. And Lord, Easter is such a great celebration of that. The sun that we see shining outside is literally shining in our hearts if Christ is in our hearts. But Lord, we also don't want to come to the table in a flippant way. You told us that those who have not yet known you or had a relationship with you, that they should, they should pause they should stay seated. They should not come and partake of something that wouldn't have that, that symbolism for them. So, Lord, we, 
We pray that for those who don't know you, that they would hold back. But we also want there to be an opportunity for those who want to know you, who want to be known by you, or to want to embrace this salvation that you've provided because of your death. Lord, I pray that they would come to you now. You would open their heart to you. Lord, that they would humble themselves. They would repent of their sins. They would say, I'm tired. I want to have assurance, not only in this life, but in the life to come, that I'm not going to die in my sins. So Lord, because you have died, because you have been raised, it means that we don't have to die in our sins, but that we can be raised to new life in Jesus. Lord, would you do that work in somebody's heart this morning? It's only you can do that work. I I don't have any of that power. Nobody on this stage has any of that power. Pastors don't have that power. You have that power, Lord. And we pray that that would extend into somebody's heart through your spirit and they would come into that new joyful relationship with you where they are forgiven people. They now can walk in newness of life with the church family that's gonna walk with them through all kinds of trials but with joy because there is an undefiled, imperishable, unfading inheritance waiting for them. Lord, would you do that work in somebody's life and heart? today. And Lord, as we take of the elements, would you produce joy in us, remembering that we, of all people, have the most hope of anybody in the world because of what you have done. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that we have lives that are changed and are being changed and being more conformed into the image of Jesus. And for that, we say thank you and praise you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.